here with us this morning. He's, he's been on guitar this morning. He's been on keys this morning. He's going to be at the pulpit this morning. Multi-talented. We're excited. Jens and his wife, Sheila, are one of our missionaries here. But you're missionaries to the North Country now. As uh, you, well, yes. Yes. As you're, you're the... I am the North Country local director for Child Evangelism Fellowship of yes. New Hampshire. Yes. Like we, we call it CEF because Child Evangelism Fellowship is just yeah, that's too hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're glad that you're, you guys are back up here yep. and fellowshipping with us, and we look forward to what you have to share. I do have some slides. So if I point, can you change slides? Oh, there we go. <laughs> All right, so that's the organization that I, I serve with. Actually, we have been serving with CEF since the 1900s. I like that. <laughs> you remember the 1900s? No, you don't remember the 1900s, do you? 1998, yep, we started serving with Camp Good News, and we served with Camp Good News until uh, 2017, and then I took on the role of the North Country local director, and it was very hard to serve in that capacity living down in Charlestown. Um, but we were in transition. Our daughter, we're still in high school, had some things going on there. And so in 2018, Ellen was going to graduate from high school. And so we started looking for homes up here in the Littleton area. And the Lord didn't provide. Well, that's not true. He didn't provide the place that we thought he should provide. And we're still waiting on the Lord to give us that place. And so we are in the process. We live in, uh, we're renting the Montours house in Lyman. They're coming back from Florida in May and want to sell their house. We can't afford their house. And so we're back in the housing market. We have a realtor and we got, we're got a, a guaranteed loan from a bank. We just got to find the right place and then the Lord will open it up. But who knows? We're, maybe the Lord's saying, you're not going to own a house, Jens. You're going to rent. And so we're just waiting upon the Lord to see what he's got for us. But let me just tell you a little bit. I want to tell you a little bit about our ministry, and then I'm going to go into the Word. And so um, if CEF is a, uh, a worldwide organization, and it's in every country of the world, reaching children in every country of the world, except for one country. What country do you think that is? North Korea. North Korea. Mr. Kim will not allow it to happen. And so even in some countries, it's underground. Um, China is mostly underground in China, but it's happening in China. And so, but last year they reached over 25.5 million children. That's a lot of children, but there's, there's like 3 billion children still. And so there's so many to reach. So you might ask, well, why reach children? I mean, they don't put offering into the offering plate. They don't, they don't provide for the church budget. I mean, why, why reach children? Well, as it says right there, children are 27% of the world's population, but 100% of the world's future. And biblically speaking, how does God feel about it, the children? He says this, It is not the will of my Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If that's how God's heart is for the children, what should our heart be like as well? It should be the same as God's. Next slide, please. It says there, um, in fact, here's some important things that 85% of all Christians come to Christ before their 15th birthday. Raise your hand if you came to Christ before you were 15 years old. Just look around. Okay, that statistic is showing true. Now, there, it's not that you can't come to Christ afterwards, but most people come to Christ before they're 15. But here's another staggering. George Barna did some research and he says that a person's worldview is primarily shaped and is firmly in place by the time someone is 
reached the age of 13. They're being indoctrinated. Right over there, there's an indoctrination center. They're teaching a worldview over there. Every school in America is teaching a worldview. And George Barna says that most of them have their worldview already shaped by 13. That's why we need to reach children. The, goal, the, the purpose of Child Evangelism Fellowship is to evangelize children in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and establish them in the word of God and a local church for Christian living. So we want to evangelize, we want to disciple but we don't want it to end there. We want to get them involved in a local church because that's the local church is where they're, they're supposed to serve and where they can grow on a weekly basis. And so that is the, the purpose. But the goal of CEF New Hampshire is to reach children in every community in New Hampshire. There's, only, there's like over 200 towns. We want to reach children in every town or community in New Hampshire. Not only that, there's only three missionaries right now in the state of New Hampshire. And I'm going to show you later how many, how many, um, pre or how many elementary school-aged children there are, but there's not enough of us. And so what do we do? We want to encourage, equip, and support local churches to reach more children in their community. Is reaching the children in the community the church's job? Wait, is it? No, no, it must be only CEF's job, right? No, it's the church's job. That's our job, folks. We're to reach the people in our community. All right, but there's only three of us. So let me show you. New Hampshire is number one. Woohoo! Well, number one in something not good. New Hampshire is the least religious state in America. That means less than 20% of any person in New Hampshire attends a church. Now, go to Walmart, count 100 people, and the top 80, they don't go to church. Maybe the next 20 do. Staggering. Now, there's 81,000 elementary school-aged children from preschool to fifth grade in New Hampshire. Next slide. So let's use the statistics. If 81,000 and 20, less than 20% of them go to church, you're talking about 16,200. But let me tell you this. When they say church, they're talking about the Jesus Christ, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They're talking about the Catholic Church. They're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, all those. And then we're talking about churches that don't really preach the gospel, that, that teach feel-good stuff. So let's use, a, I think it's 5%, and I think it's a lot less than 5%. Let's just use the 5%. That means 4,000 children in New Hampshire have access to the gospel. That leaves 77,000 children lost without access to the gospel. That's a staggering number. Let's bring it closer to home. I am the North Country Local Director. There are 9,500 elementary school children. Use that 20%. You got, you're talking 1,900 children. But if only 5% of them are hearing the gospel, have access to it, that leaves 9,025 children without access to the gospel in the North Country. What would we do? What would we do if all of a sudden... 9,000 children were wiped out in New Hampshire. That would be a national tragedy. But that's what we live with. These are lost children. So, we recognize that statistic. We know that is not what we want. So what does CEF do? CEF does these ministries. We have a Good News Club ministry. We have a five-day club ministry. We use this, the Christian Youth in Action ministry to staff the five-day club ministry. 
and we train children's workers to teach to children. So quickly, let me go through this. We, our five-day club ministry is our backyard Bible clubs. Actually, um, Faith Bible has hosted five-day clubs in Rimmick Park. It's an, awesome, it's an awesome thing that we've done. They have a Bible lesson. We, have, we sing songs. We have a mission story. We play games, and that we have memory verses. We reach children primarily who are unchurched. That's the focus of that ministry. So we don't we don't take the five-day club into a church where children are already there and have access to the gospel. We want to be on the community where children don't have access to the gospel. And we staff that through um, summer missionaries who are teenagers, ages 13 and up. And we take those teenagers and we train them we train them in, in our, our CYA training process, and they, and they go through all, uh, it's 10 days of intensive training, and not only do they get all the classes, but it's a time of worship and prayer, and they, they get to practice those things that they've learned all summer long, and it's actually, they don't come out and start teaching until we know that they can give it back to us the way it's supposed to be taught, and it's a lot of fun. So let me just say this, if you want dynamic Teachers in your children's ministry, send them to CYIA. I can tell you, as a, as a parent of two, two kids who've gone through that, my girls are better children's workers than I am because they've gone through this program. And so, church, I totally believe in sending missionaries because if you wait till, children, till teenagers figure out what they want to do, it's going to be too late. So if you see somebody with potential, send them. To this program and they're going to get a dynamic missionary experience they're going to come back to you trained and be able to serve in the local church and then we also have good news clubs and good news clubs meet in the local schools um, and so it is possible to go into school and take the gospel right into the school and it happens after school and, and faith bible has had lots of experience with good news clubs there in fact they were running Good News Clubs over here at Lakeway, Bethlehem Elementary, Whitefield Elementary, Lancaster one had, had it over in Franconia at Lafayette, um, and Lisbon Regional also had one too. And so right now, we, uh, right now we have this, the Good News Clubs around the state are in this area, but in the North Country, we have Good News Clubs right now in Lisbon, in Littleton, and Tamworth. And so... Um, let me just tell you, though, the principal at Whitefield Elementary School said we'd love to have a good news club there. And there is a team that wants to go, but they don't have enough people. And so I'm hoping by the end of the year, into the school year, we can get that um, good news club started in, in Whitefield. But the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we need to do what? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. And, our, and the next thing we do is, so we know we can't reach all the children, so we, we seek to partner with churches in our area. And so one thing that we do is training. Not only do we train our, our Good News Club teachers, but we train anybody that wants to reach children, whether it's Sunday school teachers, children ministry workers. Um, we have conferences that we do um, annually around the state. We, we train youth and we train adults. And today, this afternoon, here in the Genesis room, I'm doing a training on how to counsel children with the gospel for salvation after they responded to the invitation. If you didn't know about it and you want to come and learn how to do that, you can join us. Just let me know so I have enough stuff. But that training is happening here this afternoon from 1 o'clock to 2.30. And so those things are happening. And so let's bring it even a little closer. 
the Littleton area. All right, there are 1,300 elementary children in the Littleton area, and you can see the different towns that are there. 20% of them means 260 children. 5% is 65 children. Let's be conservative. 100 children. Easy math, right? That's still 1,200 children that you could drive to within, what, 20 minutes without the gospel. That's here. That's here. But let me just tell you, I, I, that's, I don't want to leave you with a defeating message today, but listen, God can use you. God can use you to reach the children, and God can use you to reach the lost. And so I want us to learn about that today. So take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to the book of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament. And if you could turn to chapter 5. We're going to read. Actually, I have a reader. Would you come on up and, and read for us? We're going to read. She's going to read. Is it Katie, right? You're going to read Luke 5, 17 through 26. Oh, yeah. Here you go. Nice and loud. Go ahead. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judah and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was within him to heal. And he, behold, some men some wearing, wait, were bringing on a, a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they, they were seeking to bring him in, and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Who do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to them, Wait to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise up your wait, rise up, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement wait, and amazement sized all the Wait, them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. All right, thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, may we worship. Because, Lord, we worship is primarily about you, it's not about us. It's not about how comfortable we are. It's not about even what we like or what we prefer. Worship is about you, Jesus. 
And so I pray this morning as we look into your word, we invite you to come through the Holy Spirit, convict us, show us who we are in light of what your word says, and then motivate us to live according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, probably not a new passage to anyone. Thank you so much for reading. I appreciate that. And so, you have what you have here. Um, I'm going to kind of walk down through this, but Jesus is in the house. And if you could, yeah, go ahead, next slide. Thank you. Jesus is in the house, and church is going on. You have Jesus is in there. He's preaching. And uh, he's not only he is he preaching, the gospel is going out, and he's healing things. And let me just tell you, this is church, because where's Jesus? He's in the center of it, right? Church, is, church should always have Jesus in the center. I mean, we sang that this morning. It's all about who? It's all about you, Jesus. That's right. And so church was going on, but Jesus was under scrutiny. This actually happens early in his ministry. And he's under scrutiny. See, these Pharisees have heard, hey, there's this guy, Jesus, and he's doing crazy, amazing things. You better go check it out. And so they're there to check it out. And they're like, hey, could he actually be the Messiah that we waited for? Or does he actually do all those amazing things through the power of Satan? They had to figure it out. And they were there to find out. And so the house, let me tell you, the house was packed. There was standing room only. You couldn't get through the doors, couldn't get through the windows. There was no way. Everybody was there to see Jesus because it was all about Jesus. That's why I said church was going on. Well, while that's happening there, across town, there's a man with a need. He's paralyzed. He's paralyzed and he can't get to Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us how he got paralyzed. It doesn't tell us how long he was paralyzed. It does say that he has four friends, though, that are concerned about their friend. Could be some of them are family members. But they figured out, you know what? If only, if only we could get him to Jesus, his life could get changed. They were convinced of that. And, you know, perhaps, perhaps their friend was getting worse. And this was a time and it had to happen because this man was in a hopeless situation. He wasn't getting better, I'm sure. They brought in the doctors. The doctors looked at him and said, there's nothing we can do. He's paralyzed. Nothing we can do. You know, it's disgraceful. Maybe he was the breadwinner for his family. And now he would have to beg to get the food that he needed. That's disgraceful. And so his friends are figuring out, you know, if only you could see Jesus. But you know what? They had no standing before Jesus. They couldn't like say, hey, Jesus, come to our house. They're not like Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue that can invite Jesus to their house. They, they were just nobodies. And so there's like, there's no way we're going to get it unless, unless we take him to Jesus. And just as there's no way that that person could get to Jesus unless someone brought him, there's no way those children are going to come to Jesus unless someone brings them to Jesus. Those 9,000 lost children, how are they going to see and have access to Jesus unless someone brings them to Jesus? You know, they have serious needs. Children in New Hampshire have serious needs. Listen, there are 3, 000, over 3,000 homeless children. I heard it was 23 below zero. <laughs> Sue was telling us in Bethlehem as they were coming through. Homeless in New Hampshire. It's freezing cold. Not only do we have homeless children, we have over 11,000 children are maltreated. We know that. But get this one. This is staggering. 
Children who are eight and nine years old are addicted to drugs and have been committing suicide. That's not in New, New York City. That's not someplace. That's here in New Hampshire. These children have serious needs. They're hopeless. But they need to have their most serious need met. And the one thing that they can do as we look at that problems that they have, and these are serious problems, it's one thing to look at them. It's quite another to think, hmm, I'm part of the solution. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do I need to do to bring the lost to Jesus? Okay, let's not even think about children. Let's just think about all the lost that are around us. What do we need to do to bring those lost to Jesus? When Jesus looked at the crowd over in Matthew 9, you know, how, you know what he said? He looked at them and he, and he saw them this way. He said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you and I look at crowds of people, what do we see? Do we have compassion for them? Jesus has compassion for them. He saw their spiritual lostness. When these, when, these, uh, when these men saw that their friend who was paralyzed there could not get to Jesus, had a hopeless life, they had compassion on him. They knew they couldn't get Jesus to come to them, so they're like, we're taking you to Jesus. So it says there in the scripture that they picked him up on his bed and they carried him across town. Now, probably not a very easy thing to do. And maybe at some point, somebody was probably thinking, oh, why didn't we get Ben Judah's cart and put it on the cart? You know, I'm I'm sure they must have been thinking, wow, what am I doing this for? And we don't know how far they had to carry this man. But we can conclude this, conclude this, that they loved the guy because this is a labor of love. And let me tell you, if you plan to bring the lost to Jesus, it's a thankless job. And it's got to have, it has to have a heart of compassion behind it if it's going to work. Well, over in verse 19, they finally get across town. And what do they find in verse 19? But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. The house was packed. They worked all that way. They got him all the way over there. And what happened? They can't get in. The house is packed. Was it all for nothing? All that work just to be stopped short of the house, maybe maybe. 35, 40 feet from the person that could possibly change this man's life. And again, they didn't have any, they didn't have any status, so they couldn't say, hey, go bring Jesus out here so we can heal our... No, it couldn't happen that way. Well, they could have gone home and said, well, maybe we'll try another day. Well, maybe Jesus will be closer to our house so we can do that. Nope. They didn't give up. Some of us would have given up. I probably would be one of them. But they were determined to bring their friend before Jesus because they believed that only Jesus could change his life. They must have had a great faith in Jesus. And in fact, we can see their faith by the crazy act that they did. Now, as I looked at this part of it, I'm like, I could see teenage boys doing this. <laughs> but I'm like, real, real men have coming up with this crazy plan. Hey, let's take them up on top of the roof. Let's tear away the tiles of the roof and lower him down and put him in front of Jesus. That's a crazy plan, isn't it? That's it's, it's horrible. I mean, think about it. If somebody was to tear the roof off the house tonight, <laughs> that would be crazy. But you know what? These guys were not mountain guides either. 
I mean, they're not like trained mountain guides. And so when that paralytic guy heard their story, I wonder what he was thinking. Like, I gotta do what? You're gonna drop me. I was like, hey, what, what, what worse can we do to you? You're already paralyzed. <laughs> and so he must have trusted not only his friends, but he must have really thought, boy, if I can only get in front of Jesus, my life's going to get changed. Because these four friends, they were not going to let a crowded house keep them from getting their friend to meet Jesus. So, and with that in mind, my question is to you, what are we willing to do to get the lost to see Jesus? And I'll be the first to admit, like I said, I can be a naysayer. No way, man. Even if we get them out on the top of the roof, which is not going to be easy, how are we going to get them down through? What? You want, you know, this could have been Peter's house. You know, Simon Peter, this could have been his house, actually. <laughs> you want to rip up Simon's roof tiles? And Laura, you're crazy. Simon can get violent. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'd had a lot of excuses, but these, these four friends, they did not worry about their own comfort. They were not concerned about what others might think. They were willing to try the impossible to bring their friend to the only person who could meet his needs. So what are we willing to do? Yep, we're all busy. Yep, we all have limited resources. What did Jesus tell us? When folks wanted to follow him, what did he say? If you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And not only did he tell us that, he showed us. Because when it came to meeting our deepest need, what did he do? He took up his cross and he died for us. And when we take up our cross, it means we suffer. And sometimes when we suffer, we suffer in time spent. That means our daytimers are probably going to get pretty messed up. There's one person I was talking to he dreads almost going into Walmart to get one light fixture or something like this because he goes in to do one thing. He spends an hour there talking and praying with people and finally his wife must think, what are you doing? Why are you so long getting home? But it takes time. If we're going to bring the lost, it takes time. We might suffer in our finances. Well, I only have so much. I, you know, I've set this aside. This is for the kids. I got some girls going to college. Wait a second. Whose money is that? It's not ours. We suffer in our finances because we think it's ours, don't we? That's really God's stuff. And when we use God's resources to do God's work, that's what it's supposed to be like, right? So we might seem like we're suffering in our finances. We might suffer in how comfortable we are. Do you know, it's not about our comfort. Christianity is not about comfort. Somebody brought you to Christ saying, well, you're going to have a comfortable life in Christ. They were selling you something. Christianity is not about our comfort. We are not saved so we can be more comfortable. We're saved to have abundant life. We're saved to have abundant joy. We're saved to have peace. But we're going to suffer. Because when we follow Jesus, he said we pick up our cross. That means we're going to suffer. And we might suffer in how people look at us. They might look at us strange. That's why they were called in the 70s Jesus freaks, right? But that's, you know, we, 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 we might suffer in how people view us. Well, when those four friends decided they were going to go and get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they determined that the cost was worth meeting his need. So are we willing to pay the cost 
to bring the lost to Jesus. And I'm sure when they started lowering that man through the roof, it was a sermon stopper. <laughs> and, and I can imagine, that was probably, this is exactly what happened. People saw the roof, was like, and I'm sure a lot of them were laughing like crazy. Oh, can you believe what they're doing? Except for the guy who owned the roof. I can just imagine, he was steaming. What are you doing? That's a waterproof roof. But you know what? Jesus wasn't surprised. In fact, I know Jesus was pleased. How do I know he was pleased? Oh, verse 20. What's it say? It says, and Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. You know what it says in Hebrews eleven six? 6? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In fact, faith is huge to Jesus. There are two times in the Gospels, and I've been studying the Gospels in my quiet time, when I found that there's two times in the Gospels when Jesus marveled. Now, that, that blew me away. Wait a second. Jesus, Jesus is God the Son. Jesus, he, he, he lives in heaven. Jesus, he created everything. I mean, he's seen everything, and yet God the Son can marvel? Well, why does he marvel? Well, the first incident was back in Matthew 8, and uh, Jesus, the, there was a Roman centurion. He had a servant who was sick, and almost dying, and so he sent, he sent the servant to Jesus to say, hey, please, Jesus, come and heal my servant. And while Jesus was on the way, he sent another servant and said, hey, Lord, don't bother. You don't have to come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant's going to be healed. And Jesus turned to the crowd, and he said this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Why did he marvel? Because of the man's faith. The other place that you find where Jesus is marveled was over in Mark 6. And Jesus has gone back to his hometown in Nazareth where he's not really accepted. In fact, listen what it says in, it says in verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And listen, he marveled because of their unbelief. So twice, Jesus marveled. And what is it related to? It's related to faith. Faith is a huge deal to God. What we believe about him says about who we are and what we think and what we, what we put our trust in. And so when Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith, he was impressed. He looked at their actions, and their actions revealed what their faith was. Their actions said, you know what? No matter what cost, we're going to get this person in front of Jesus. And so what happens? He comes down, and he gets in front of them. And what does Jesus say? I love this. Man, your sins are forgiven you. And I can only imagine, if I was holding that rope, i like, let go. What? I just carried him. He's paralyzed, Jesus. I didn't bring him to forgive his sins. He needs to walk. And Jesus looked at that man. Yeah, he saw paralysis, but that wasn't his biggest need, was it? His biggest need wasn't his paralysis. His biggest need was that he was separated from God. He had no relationship with the God. And Jesus looked at him. He saw their faith and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He was lowered down there as a dead man. And Jesus forgave his sins. He became alive. Amazing thing. And the other thing I thought here, as I looked at this, Jesus didn't just look at this man's faith. Now, I know 
and you know, Ephesians tells us that, that by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and, and the faith of the person that, that comes to Christ is, is critical. But listen what it says. And when he saw their faith, that blew me away. When he saw their faith. And I began to wonder, wait, wait. What does my faith in Jesus Christ, how does that work towards the healing of sin in other people's lives. Have you ever thought about that? What does our collective faith have to do with people being cured from their sickness of sin? Because Jesus didn't just see the faith of the guy coming down on the bed. He looked at the faith of all of them. And I had to ask myself, hey, listen, when I'm teaching in a good news club and a child comes to Christ, and that actually happened to me on Tuesday. That was wonderful. But when they make that profession of faith, does God look at my faith as well when he calls that child to himself? And if so, how does that work? And I began to think, wait a second. My faith in Jesus gives me the eyes to see the needs in other people's lives as Jesus sees them. He helps me to see that they're really, truly lost. And my faith in Jesus confirms in me that only Jesus can affect any change in this person's life. My faith in Jesus motivates us into action. What do we need to do to bring that person to Jesus? And my faith in Jesus helps me ask, what am I willing to do to bring the lost people to Jesus? How far am I willing to put things at risk to get them in Jesus' presence? Jesus said this in, in John chapter 6. And you want to know what the will of God is? Jesus tells us plainly right here. Listen, listen to this. John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes him in him has eternal life. Well, people can't see Jesus today. He's not walking around. They can't go see Jesus. How are they going to see Jesus? Right here. This is how we see Jesus. Through God's revealed word, through what Jesus says. This is what we need to take and we need to communicate that because Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to help them see Jesus through what God has said and what Jesus has said in his word. What would have happened to that man in paralysis who was lost in his sin if they had just given up and gone home that day? Ah, guess we can't see Jesus today. Oh, I got other important things to do today. I don't have any more time. There's just too many obstacles in the way. I'm just out of energy, too. I can't carry him up on top of the house. They seem like excuses, but they're not. They're real things. They're things that we all face, and they're facts of life. But if he was not lowered down and put in Jesus' presence so he could see Jesus, he would have never seen him. He would have never believed in him, and his life would have not been changed. Jesus saw him, saw their faith, and he says to the man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. His greatest need was taken care of. Not only that need, and that's an amazing, he has a new life with Christ, but Jesus went further and he wanted to prove to those Pharisees, yes, I am God. And he says to the man, he says to the man, all right, listen, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. 
And what did he do? He stood up, picked up his stuff at bed, and he walked home glorifying God. He wants, he came in paralyzed. He leaves walking. He came in as a dead man. He leaves a newness of life. And he walks home. What is he walking home? He's glorifying God. Jesus is all about bringing glory to his Father. You see, only Jesus could change this man's life. And it happened through his and his friend's faith. I'm going I'm to wrap this up. That house was packed that day. It was packed with people, but not everyone in the house who was in the presence of Jesus had their life changed. Why? You see, just being in Jesus' presence did not save them. But when you see Jesus and you believe in him, you will always be saved. Perhaps, perhaps there is someone here, maybe more than one someone who has sat in the presence of Jesus week after week, yet you continue to live unchanged by the sin that you're trapped in. And maybe it's a situation where, well, I have to go to church because mom and dad say I have to go to church and I have to sit there and listen to it. Just because you sit here doesn't mean that you're changed. You're only changed by your belief in who Jesus is. Do you see that you're utterly lost without his healing in your life? Jesus did everything required to take our sins away. He took that cross. He hung on that cross. He was nailed to that cross. And while he was hanging on that cross, what did God do? God took your sin. He took my sin, the sins that we've done in the past, the sins we're going to do today, the sins we're going to do tomorrow. He took all those sins and he put them on his son, Jesus, who had never sinned. Jesus hung on that cross and he died. And they put him in that tomb, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus came back to life. And now he's up in heaven with God, his Father. He's done everything that you need to do. You just need to turn from your sin and trust completely that Jesus can save you from that sin. And then you too can walk in newness of life. Jesus invites you to come to him by faith. If you want to talk more about that after the service, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Pastor Nick would love to have that, or any of the elders here would love to have that conversation with you. But listen, if you're here and you've trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, as we look at this scripture account, we have to ask ourselves, how do we see the lost people around us? When Jesus looked at those lost that were around him, he saw them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples this. He said, look at the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnest, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. You know what? You and I are those laborers. So, there are hundreds of lost. Like I said, I, I, I just... Go out and stand in front of one of the local elementary schools and count the children. Use that 5%. Pick the first five and count up to 100. Those are the lost. Go to Walmart, count the people. Those are the lost. I don't, don't worry about the lost. You can't, if you start with hundreds, you're, you're not going to get there. How about one? Is there one person that we know that we can recognize as lost? And can we bring that one person so that they might meet Jesus who can meet their greatest need. 
Do we have the faith that Jesus could truly change them? And what are we willing to do to bring them into Jesus' presence so that they might see Jesus, believe in them, and have eternal life? Let's pray. Father,